So this is a very different Hespid, and let me explain. Today in Eretz Yisrael, I'm on the way back from a very, very long trip. It was a three-hour Hespid. It took us an hour and a half to get there. It's going to take us three hours back in the pouring, pouring rain. So my feet are waterlogged, very cold. It's the eighth day of Hanukkah, but we all went to the Levaya of Rav Chaim Jukman, Zechot Tzedek Levracha. Now, I didn't know him that well. Didn't know him at all, in fact. I may have shaken his hand once, but that's the extent of our relationship, and even that I'm not, re- I'm not sure. And why would I be delivering a hespid for someone who I never met, had no contact with, and never read his svarim or his ideas? Very often you didn't, you didn't meet someone where they were living, but you meet them through their ideas, through their works that you read. I never read his ideas, so why would I be giving this hespid? Because I think a lot of people who listen to some of my Torah or my ideas, in Chutzlaritz in particular, have no clue who he was, no clue what world he represented. And quite frankly, if you get on the news tonight, Israeli news, you'll see, I don't know what the numbers were, but it's hard to know whenever you're part of a Kriyabat or estimate, probably fifty, sixty thousand 60,000 people. So that's a pretty big Levaya, probably more, but based on this traffic, <laughs> how long is it going to take me to get home? It feels like it's about a million people, but that's neither here nor there. I'm stuck on a bus. So I feel even just sharing my view on who he was and collecting some of the ideas that were expressed at the Levi and the various Aspedim, and in fact, in a helpful and authentic way, contrasting him with some of the people who we typically view as Gedolim, and he wasn't that Gedol in the typical sense, may be helpful for people to wrap their heads around who he was and why he was different. So that's the purpose of my giving a hesped, but a thousand disclaimers. This is not a hesped from someone that knew him, um, but it is a hesped from someone that lived in his world. That's why I went to the hesped today, and it's a very different world than a lot of people um, listening, maybe part of the Yeshiva Shevel, the modern Orthodox world. It's clearly a very different different world. It's called Dati Lumi, and it's centered upon very different values. Obviously, there are many, many overlaps between all the worlds, and but this is a very different type of person. What makes him different? So, typically, I want to choose my words as carefully as I can on a frozen bus ride home, but typically, when we think about Gedolim, so the classic Gadol is a, is a person who's a master of Torah, someone who's been through Shas multiple times, written Svarim, um, teaches thousands of people the mysteries, the inner logic of a Kodesh Baruch Hu's will as expressed through Torah Shabal Someone like, let's say, Rabbi Soloveitchik, if you're listening uh, and you, you're identified with that with that group or some of the other Gedolim in our world or in the in the past uh, in our past heritage, my own Rabbi Ravaran Lichtenstein who opened up the world of Torah Shabal to me and for me. Um, and Drippin wasn't that. He learned in the Yeshiva Merkos Arab, but again, I never heard a shear of his, I never attended a shear of his, but I would imagine that many of his Talmudim would agree that, that that wasn't what made him exceptional, attending his shear on Gemara. Well, oftentimes it's someone who's a great posek. The person isn't, let's say that, and as I've said many times in these conversations, it's very hard to be both a great posek and a great lamdam because the mental processes are completely antithetical. One tries to funnel down to the 
majority opinions or the dominant opinions of Posek and get rid of all the minority opinions as being non-halachic or the one we're not going to accept. And Alamdam tries to propagate as many opinions as he can to try to track down as many elements of Hashem's Ratzam. Okay, so great Poskin people, and let's say one of the biggest Lamdanim, a, a lot of people read of Moshe Feinstein's Dibris Moshe. Um, I have the Dibris Moshe at home. In the Yeshiva Shevelt, in the Olam HaTorah, we, we don't run to read every Dibris Moshe. You read it here or there if you pick it up on a shelf. It's not what Moshe was known for. He was known for being one of the leading Poskin of his generation. Um, you can make the same claim about many others. Ravad um, Yosef, right? Um, again, it's just such a torrent of information, it's hard to see where the Rizzer is in Lundus, but again, you, you don't get the feeling that he's growing branches to the tree, you get the feeling that he's pruning branches from the tree to get down to the bark. This is a, maybe a, a very apt metaphor. Are you a branch grower or a branch pruner? A posek is a branch pruner getting down to the trunk, and a London is a branch, branch grower. Now, very often we say, again, I don't like that word gadol because it's so slippery, but very often we'll talk about someone who is a major, major thinker. They're not a lamdan in the classic sense. They're certainly not a posik in the classic sense, but they open up new horizons of ideas at important times in history. Um, one could say that about Rishim Shunafal Hirsch, let's say. Joy issued psakim, but... I haven't ever heard his Psak quoted as a major, major novel idea contributing to the world of Psak. Um, he learned the Reb Natali Etlinger, the Binyan Zion, Nerech Lener. But again, we don't go through a sugya and, and all of a sudden uncover some great new ideas and new discovery in the sugya of Talmudic logic for Rosh Hashanah Hirsch. But for his time in Germany, he was a maverick thinker and he introduced a, a range of ideas, system of ideas that that, that people led their lives by, that, that created new communal and, and even European ways of, of serving a Kurdish Baruch, modernized Yiddishkeit in a very important juncture in history. You think about Rabbi Sachs, Rabbi Sachs um, being the face of modern Jewish thought as, I don't, know, I don't know if I've ever heard people say this, but as the Jewish world and the Christian world reach a rapprochement, all of a sudden some of the ideas about Christianity and about Gentiles and about other religions felt outdated in a world of civility, in a world of monotheism, in a world of acceptance of Jews, and and yet a world of anti-Semitism, which he labored and battled so fiercely, and that I think is part of his genius. I don't think you would apply any of these definitions of Gidolim to Rabbi Druckmann. Again, I haven't read his Svarim, I haven't listened to his Shurim, but that itself is saying something, because his Shurim and his his Shiram and Gemara, his, his Psakim, his, they're, not, they're not quoted with, with great authority and with great novelty. So why were there tens of thousands of people at the Levaya? So I think it's a chance for us to appreciate some of the traits that were spoken about and that registered with me when people mentioned it at the funeral. It's not as if they were completely foreign to me. By the way, I'm speaking very lowly because I'm on a bus. So I'm trying to be sensitive to the driver who's sitting right in front of me and to the to the mashkiach who's sitting right next to me. But I certainly want to get this out as, as quickly as I can so people can listen. So he doesn't fit those classic molds, and yet he changed so much of Torah in Eretz Yisrael in ways that don't flow through the normal circuitry of Gedolim, of learning and psak. So who was he? And how is this reflective of a whole form of Avodah Hashem 
in the Dati Lumi world that even amongst the people doesn't always come out in how much Gemara they learn. And that's what I think is a big takeaway for people to understand. Not that people in Dati Lumi don't learn Gemara, or not everyone, so even the people who view themselves as the medium of his. But I, I would say it is this... What's the word I'm looking for? I actually stopped the recording just to think for a minute. Normally I just say what's on my mind, but I, I want to get this right, and so many ideas were expressed at the Leviah. What I would say is as follows. There is, There are two new outlets to the love of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in our world. The typical outlet for someone that loves HaKadosh Baruch Hu was to try to study as much of his will as you could. To study as much Torah. And all of a sudden now we're in the land of Israel. And there are two new outlets of love. And I say outlets, not two new loves, because it should come, as it did for Rabbi Akiva, out of this overarching love of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. If you love HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so in addition to loving his will and loving his Torah, you want to love every single Jew. Because every single Jew is baramatem l'shem malokechem. Now, that's one statement in the 18th century when Hasidus sounds that statement, because you're talking about isolated Jews who are off the derech, as we would say, out of the shtetl. How do you express love for them? It's a whole different story when millions of Jews leave. And I was thinking a lot about the Lubavitcher Rebbe today and parallels between the Lubavitcher Rebbe and Chaim Jokman. But when you get to the land of Israel, and there's this organ that people can belong to, and do belong to, even without common religious practice, that love is tested, but also has a heft and a resonance to it that it doesn't have when it's just one Jew leaving the shtetl for the Hasidim, or even millions of Soviet Russian Jews or American Jews that Lubavitcher Rebbe was so, so dedicated to, including. And here's the next part, and a lot of people don't get this. If you love a Kodesh Baruch Hu so deeply, in addition to loving his word and loving his people, you want to love his land. And that's where I think Rev Drukman was an icon. As one of the founders of Gushim Munim, and one of the leading forces, and he conducted the, the first Seder in Hebron, the Redeemed Hebron, the Park Hotel, they put Hebron on the map, and you can wiki all these things, just wiki Hebron, Park Hotel, Seder with Jukman. And that's what a lot of people, I think, don't, who don't live in Israel, who live in Israel in their gilded, sectored areas, don't get about how important settlement is. And harsh, unequivocal, demanding every inch of land. It comes across as hawkish, and it comes across as racist for some people, and it comes across as as um, politically impractical. But when it comes from the love of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and it's just another, it's, it's the ebbing moments of Hanukkah, just another branch of the menorah, so it's an integrated love. And here's where I want to choose my words carefully. Ideally, yes, you can have one person who encompasses it all. But you'd have to be a very special person. And we should all try to be that person who loves HaKadosh Baruch Hu so deeply, and is a big time and loves every inch of land, and loves every single Jew. 
and maybe I'm describing some people that this audience is familiar with, but very often it's one at the cost of the other, in some cases just because of investment of resources and his love for the Jewish people, his commitment and devotion. And he was he founded, he basically founded Hesder. Any one of any anyone who's listening to this year who attended any Hesder Yeshiva in Israel. And for that matter, any program in Israel, because it's a fair argument to make that without the Hesders admitting Americans in the 70s and 80s, all the American programs of the 90s and the 2s would not have emerged. And when he arrived on the scene, Ben Akiva was a youth movement, a firm youth movement, but it didn't have a Torah content. And he filled it with Torah content. And as part of that, he was the leading force behind the first Hesder Yeshiva, Yeshiva's Karen Biafna. Now, you've heard me often say the yeshiva at Haritzion was the first Hesu yeshiva. Again, it depends how you count it. If you count it chronologically, Mekir Biafna was the first Hesu yeshiva. Rav Amitel, my Rebbe, and I'll put a picture of Rav Amitel and of Jerkman together, he, he was the first to try to envision what Hesu would look like, not just as a place for people to study Torah before they went to the army, but as an integrated part of changing society. But for the purposes of our conversation right now, Chronologically, starkly, B'nai is the first Hesu Yeshiva. So anyone out there who's learned, which I assume is probably close to 70-80% of the people listening, who's learned in Hesu Yeshiva in Israel, or in a girls' seminary, women's seminary, or in an American program, it's all because of Rav Drickman. And I'll talk about his devotion later. You can't do that if you're sitting in sickness all day. Believe me, I struggle with this every minute of every day. I would love to learn another piece of Gemara and another Telsos, and if this traffic jam lasts any longer, I think I'll probably have the chance to. <laughs> I've been in a bus all day. But you just can't do it all. And that is where he shined. The trends, the, 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 the ability to integrate those three loves. And of course, don't think he was just a, a lover of Eretz Yisrael and a lover of the Jewish people. And how much Torah he was Marbitz, but again, he was the Marbit star. He was a Rosh Hashiva, and his shirim were, were beloved to all. But I don't know, I can't tell you that for generations people are going to quote his Chidush Torah. Again, I don't know. So if you're listening to this and you have a different idea and you've, you've heard shirim, and, but that's not his legacy. And part of what I noticed at the Hesbid, and really this is just my thoughts over the last three, four hours, so it's very personal. It's not... That doesn't stem from any long-term relationship. Um, is as part of that love, he was just so devoted and single-minded and self-annihilating. Um, again, some people need a quote from a gadol about a gadol just to validate the topic of the quote. So here's the quote: Shlomo Zalman said about Rav Drukman. So those are not necessarily two people you would associate with one another. Shlomo Zalman said about Rav Drukman that he was a chefza of Mesiris Nefesh Ta'am Yisrael. So those of you who are Lamdanim, you'll appreciate that. A chefza is someone who dispossesses or divests his own animate cognitive self to become just so given and so um, subservient to some larger purpose. A chefza in Gemara language is as a passive utensil rather than a gavra. The gavra is the antonym. So a gavra is a person of ideas, of principles, of ego, of needs, of interests. And he was just, he, he so eliminated and emptied himself of any personal interests that he became a chefza of Messir's Nefesh, Tam Yisrael. 
And again, many people in Chutzlaretz know him, sadly, it happens all the time, based on the somewhat controversial events that he was involved in to try to create a pathway for Jews to be included in the state of Israel, not just as citizens, but as halachic Jews who came from the former Soviet Union. And again, this is something that Lubavitcher didn't have to deal with because he wasn't operating within a national setting. He was operating with just, how can I just get Jews out of Russia and make them feel Jewish? But it's not enough in Israel to feel Jewish because if you're not a member of the Jews, you can't marry Jews and it's, it's a whole different sub-demographic. And it's, you know, it's anyone's guess whether the Babacher would have said or done in our context. And um, as I, I tweeted earlier today that Rav Amar, Shlomo Amar, no one would accuse him of being liberal and being a halachic. He was the former Sephardic chief rabbi. He was broken up in tears during the Hespit because they were personal friends, even though they'd come to it later in life. And they worked very closely together in Geras. And Rav Amar says, and I'm just going to see if I could find the quote, but basically uh, Rav Amar said that whenever Rav Drukman consulted with Rav Amar, and, and that would be the logical hierarchy, Rav Amar was, was the more classic Talmud Chacham slash Posek, so whenever Rav Drukman would consult with Rav Amar, so Rav Drukman would follow Rav Amar's guidance uh, position without changing a word, without changing, as Rav Amar said, even a small little jot or tittle. And you can argue the Geras, and a lot of people argue the details of Geras, but it's one thing to argue it from afar, either geographically or historically. It's another thing to face the crisis we're facing. And again, I'm, I'm not not conversant enough in the positions he took, and I'm not, this is not supporting or opposing it, but just putting it into context. And if you just look at it in a halachic vacuum, you could find the halachic irregularities or the leniencies you're not willing to accept. But if you put it into the historical context and the national context, and in so much of what people who don't live in Israel don't understand about the ideas that come out of people who live in Israel... Is it's just the equations here are so multivariable and there's so many crosswinds. And again, if you're a Haredi, then your legitimate approach is to say it all begins and ends with halacha and the Kurdish Barakhu Bilvad and whatever larger national issues there are, from Shemitah to Geir to Kashrus, let Hashem worry about that. And, and when I say let Hashem worry about that, Bischus Artamatar and Bischus Ashmiris and Mitzvahs, Hashem will resolve these incorrigible problems for us. And that's in Shita. But if you're of a different shita and you want to try to tackle some of these issues without um, without violating halachic integrity, that becomes very, very complex in ways that life isn't. And some people flee from that complexity and some people embrace that complexity because we haven't had the opportunity in so long to live with that complexity. And we hope, of course, that our world will become less complex. So that's why he feels a little different. And, and he was, it's, it's going to sound very strange. And the truth is, I remember almost not saying this in ways that were disrespectful, but thinking it in ways that I think in retrospect were disrespectful. I didn't think it in a disrespectful manner, but he was perhaps the most successful Madrich and Bnei Akiva ever. Now, he, his start was a Madrich and Bnei Akiva, and his start was as a Shliach, and he worked his way up through the ranks of Bnei Akiva and through the army. Obviously, we should all be as knowledgeable and as much of a tzaddik in Torah and Avas Yisrael and Shmiris HaMitzvot and Sirius Nefeshtam Yisrael as that Bnei Akiva Madrich, speaking from someone who was never a Bnei Akiva Madrich, and this is not to 
Lord, Ben Akiva, it's a be all and end all. There are many great institutions. Ben Akiva does its part, and others does this, but it's not a pro Ben Akiva. I'm just placing him in, in, in the pantheon of what, how you'd call him. And, and he actually said that, that he was very careful not to dress as a rabbi. And he would, would often actually wear the Ben Akiva shirt with the shoelaces that for many people who have negative associations with Ben Akiva, it's very jarring to see someone of that caliber. But what happened was he created movement and influence and change from the bottom up, as Kabbalah likes to say. Isra'usa de la tata, not Isra'usa de la ela. Typically the change comes, and certainly you can contrast this with the Haredi world, which is so top-down, where, where the word says, will say, becomes becomes the law and everyone has to follow and, and countel and in a good way this I meant to say it in a, in a negative fashion has to submit to those large ideas that are handed down from up above and this was a completely different change and that's why so many people don't understand him he was a madrich obviously he learned in Yeshiva's miracles Harav with many Gedoli Torah and he was a Gedol in Torah but not in the classic way that the Chidushim would blow you off your, your rockers, we would say, or ideas that you never had thought of. And what stood out for people was, number one, of course, how much he changed. It's hard to imagine. I'll say this. It's hard to imagine as someone who was a Talmud of Rav Amitel and of Lichtenstein. I would, I would say, okay, it would be fair to say that his impact on the Dati Lumi Torah world surpassed that of Rav Lechensin and Rav Amitel. It's hard because Rav Lechensin and Rav Amitel created banks of ideas. When you create these very, very deep ideas that people continue to quote, so the dividends constantly roll over. I don't know how often, again, maybe I'm not that much in that world, but I don't, I don't get the sense that people are quoting, oh, he said this incredible idea on Yosef and his brothers, this incredible chiddush on Tosvos. But in terms of a pace setter and creating a model and creating a level of commitment to those three values of Tarat Eretz Yisrael, Tarat Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael, Am Yisrael. I, I was at Rav Lechensin's Levaya. I don't remember there being the same amount of people. Again, I was inside and wasn't sitting outside. And I was just looking around and seeing how many people, again, people could call it the Hardali world if you're a little more familiar with it. I, I dislike these labelings. I, I came today because I felt part of the same world. Some other short ideas, um, let's see. They speak about his warmth as a person, and it's something I struggle with a lot. Um, many of the gedolim, let's say, that I look up to, and many of the gedolim that we speak about, you wouldn't say that their warmth was their calling card. Because you're, you're a man of ideas, and, and, and you're... Your mind is riveted to this other world, not necessarily the world in front of you. And as much as you can speak about Tzalem as the altar of Slobodkin, as much as you can speak about Kavod Abrios, and as much as you can speak about... And speaking about the funny thing about them, I have to be honest with this, it, it's coming from your mind. It's not coming from... I don't know if it's not coming from your heart, but it's, it's, it's a combination of mind and heart. And this is what I, what I mentioned before, that sometimes it's hard for one person to be everything. And just the way that people talked about the warmth of this person, it just took me by surprise, someone that had never never known this, this scuttle. 
um, Ashley Bibi, and I, I don't often quote Bibi Netanyahu for many reasons, but Bibi spoke about the fact that Rev Druckmann's voice was always hoarse. There was something natural, not not because he was always screaming to Vaitari, he just had a hoarse voice. That was his, his, the way HaKadosh Baruch Hu created his voice, or maybe happened later in life, I don't know, but but that also had an appeal and a charm and a warmth. And I was thinking about that actually because when Bibi got up to speak and he's so polished and in the middle of the husband, Mr. Polished Bibi got up and it made a made a negative impression on me. You, know, you want to feel emotion, you want to feel passion. And then when he said, Rav Jukman's voice was hoarse, I was saying, maybe you should, maybe you should have a, vo- a hoarse voice. And, but uh, that, that, that not, not necessarily relevant, but just my own thoughts during. And his handshake, people were talking about his handshake and how embracing his handshake was. And... Rav Amar, the former chief rabbi, was saying something that, that we all know how politicians across the spectrum felt united and, and in a world of such divided politics and such sectarian politics to have someone that even, someone quoted Yassi Sarid, so people who are older than 45 probably remember him as an arch left-winger, how respectful he was of Rav Jerkman, even though Rav Jerkman's politics and positions were diametrically opposed. Yassi Sarid, Rav Amar spoke about his humility, a lack of self-interest, and how Rav Amar always wanted him to speak, I think, at family events, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Rav Jerkman and Rav Amar were so close that Rav Jerkman was invited to the family events of Rav Amar, and you have to, I'm sure all these espadim were available online, but something of that nature, and Rav Jerkman always deferred, and, and that's also something, uh, let me summarize it this way, humility, warmth, sometimes it's harder for people who are great thinkers to feel them as naturally. I'm not a great thinker, not a great warm person. I try to be as best as I can. I just think there are different centers of gravity. I know myself. My center of gravity is, is my mind is is very often elsewhere. And very often in a telescope, and very often in a medrash, and very often in an article I'm writing. And of course, when a person comes my way, I, I try to be as kind as I can. And of course, there are moments in which I feel my heart overcoming my head. But I think that sometimes when you have someone who isn't as, for lack of a better word, as brainy, I'm not, I'm not judging what his IQ was, but whose world isn't the world of ideas and telescopes and concepts, and he lives these traits so deeply and so emphatically, it just rubs off on people. And, you know, I'll leave this as an open question, maybe, maybe it rubs, rubs off on people in ways that ideas and Chidush don't, as broadly for sure, because Chidush and ideas are much more limited in their appeal. The question is, is it deeper or not deeper? And that's, that's a question I leave for, for people to answer to their, to their, for themselves. So these are just some very, very sporadic ideas, all taken from the Levaya and the Hespedim, which we have basically moved about a half a mile since I began this year, so it looks like I will have time for some Tosus and um, not much time to get home tonight and prepare share, but I just wanted, by way of contrast, and in honesty, in ways that I hope are, are laudatory and, and appropriate for someone of this statue who is Nifter, to give those who aren't part of the Datilami world here a sense of who this person was, and he's a Chorobarach.